Hey everybody, talkingbook.pub is a non-profit audiobook publisher of independent literature. We are located in Asheville, North Carolina, and because we are a non-profit, uh, donations and help from people like you who love these books and love these recordings really helps a lot. So if you want to get involved, donate to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash talkingbook, or go to our website, talkingbook.pub, and read about our mission, send us an email, give us a call, whatever you want to do. But enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hey everybody, my name's Chris Hartram, and you might remember me from other episodes of the Talking Book Podcast, Uh, but we got something cool today. Last week, Sebastian Matthews, who's an American poet and writer living in Asheville, stopped by the old Talking Book House and read from his new work, Life and Times of an American Crow. Uh, It's a serialized collage novel made up of 11 chapbooks or so. Um, It's kind of a box set. And you can follow this character, American Crow, uh, through these travel journals, which consist of collage art and drawings and type text. Uh, It's pretty fascinating. It's really cool, pretty wild. Uh, But when he came over, Dave and our new assistant editor, Robin Carter, was there. Robin asked him some questions, uh, and he answered the questions, and he read some pieces from the book. And uh, yeah, this is it. Check it out. You know, I've I've always I always wanted to write about you know the time when I was hanging out with friends. We all do, I think, when you're in your early twenties, it seemed like the most amazing time, and we all wanted to be Kerouac or somebody. And um, and I never had never had done it, but when I was I think in my mid thirties, we adopted a boy, and he was just seven weeks old, and it was like my life was very much not what I was thinking of writing about, and I, I ran into a kid on the street downtown. And he was definitely a cross between a kind of Kerouac wannabe and a homeless kid. And, and I, I definitely thought, oh, that was the way I was. And then I realized that now nah, he was further out there than I had ever gotten and maybe didn't have a safety net. And uh, maybe I, then I started imagining what if he had AIDS or what if he was had a kind of depression that was undiagnosed or what was, you know, how far was he out? And, and would he would he ever get back to a place? Was he just going to keep drifting and, and never really come back to a place that would be more stable? Or was he, and would he like that? Or would he, or was he trying to find a way to settle? And I began to imagine his life. And then I got, he, then the name American Crow, the nickname, or the, he renamed, you know, he renames himself American Crow, suddenly became, in my head, a, he became a character. And so what I did was I, took from my own no- my own notebooks when I was in my 20s and stories that I had told and experienced with my friends and used them as the framework for his stories, but gradually began to change them and deepen them and, and, and let them take their own course. So it starts in an autobiographical way, but ends up very much fiction. As I said, I, I made collages. Um, there are handmade collages that are copied in all these chapbooks I made for about a two-year period in his persona. He was just, you know, kind of thinking, what would he be looking at? What materials would he be using? And I used old National Geographic's, old Playboys, old Life magazines, all from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I thought, you know, he's the guy that would be rummaging in 
these stores and getting, you know, a bin, you know, a bag of National Geographic's for five bucks. And then I imagine he didn't have a scissors and he didn't really have any good glue. So it was all, what would he do them on? Well, he would do postcards and he would send the postcards to his friend. And actually my friend and I were doing that when we were in our 20s. We were sending each other postcards. Some of the postcards were actually the ones we made back then. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I kind of put those in there. So I, they became all ripped, ripped, not cut, um, just a glue stick. And so I kind of tried to create an atmosphere where um, maybe I can when I, I'll read a, a part from the book where it, it describes them beginning to make collages. Uh, this is a book of vignettes, two or three pages each, and this one's called Life's a Collage. Jack was the one who got it started, pulling out old magazines and a pocket full of glue sticks one night at Sarah's. Let's make collages, brothers. It was me, Jack, Alistair, Sarah, and maybe Andy. Everyone, everyone else was working a shift or crashing somewhere. What do we use as backs? I'd done my share of art school exercises. Postcards, Alistair cried, jumping up from the table and running out of the room. He came back in a few minutes, huffing and puffing from his trips on the stairs, a handful of touristy postcards. He threw them on the table. We'll send ourselves a card, he said. Wish you were here, I said. Wish you stayed the fuck home, Jack said in a drawl. I grabbed a magazine and started ripping out pages. Jack found a scissors, and we shared that around. Life's a collage, one of us said. It sounded cheesy, we all agreed. But the truth... Arts, bastard, younger brother, stepchild, Frankenstein, monster. Just focus on the way that you scissor the images or you can rip or cut them. Go slow or fast. That was Alistair. An interest in precision or no interest at all, blah, blah, blah. We laughed at that. We laughed at his mini rant. Though later, just the two of us at a corner table. The first move's clear, so you had a second. You had a third piece to complicate things, a lateral move, a new energy force coming to end to alter and confuse the dialectic. Energy, two lovers in the act, talk over beers, one color set next to another. Are you still with me? I was and I wasn't. It was never easy following Alistair down the back alleys of his addled mind. After that, I started making postcards for real. Alistair insisted I send them to him out of his old, out of his old house by the point. He'd collect them. Eventually, he'd get a post office box so we could send each other cards whenever we wanted. When we hit the road, Boston, Montreal, the all-night bus to New York City, out west, we'd put out the cards in random mailboxes, stockpiling as many postmarks as we could. We started getting pretty good, I must say, using both sides of the card, hiding the stamp in the image. Alistair's thing was getting the postman to hand-stamp the postmark. I wanted to trick the post office by making the address as tiny as possible, finding new ways to incorporate it into the background image. Eventually, I began to pair the collages with my drawings. To do that, I'd have to find larger format cards. Things were getting serious. Two things. One is I wanted to write about, um, that's a little bit later than when I, I, you know, I'm 53. And so when I was in my 20s, this was, I was more in the 80s, early 80s. But I didn't, I wanted this to be a little bit closer to our time. But I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be pre-cell phone pre-internet, pre-all that, because that's a different life that, that really my boy's never going to see. And you, I think you, your generation, you've seen kind of both. Yeah. But my, like my kids, yeah, my kid has no idea. Yeah. And when I was first hanging out, it's like 79 was first freshman in high school, 83 freshman in college. The computers were around, but we weren't using them. 
and and internet i think was technically around but we weren't aware of it and so that lifestyle and we were getting on buses and taking trains and hitchhiking we were trying to be some we were trying to pretend to be something that was before us you know um so i wanted to capture that and there's also there was the end of the aid scare was still around but it was kind of beginning to pass through so i wanted to have that kind of era in there and i also wanted to have the first gulf war i mean that's that time had its own politics and these are pretty apolitical kids they're just kind of trying to have a really good time but but they are also trying to emulate people who were dropping out and so the, 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 there was a politics behind it some more than others maybe yeah i mean alistair is a character who's very very much into mischief he wants to he wants to explode things and and i'll read a piece next about called um stealing experience which is their crazy idea for a way to kind of live a life a little more alive than a normal life we were trespassing as usual having broken into one of those shiny new buildings going up along the river the place was at least 12 floors tall. It was almost done, except the walls, the floors, the trim, and the last flourishes. We snuck up to the top floor and stole the architect's blueprints. They were sitting there on this little fold-out table. Hell, he didn't need them anymore. Must have stored another set somewhere. We rolled them up in a big tube and got the hell out of there. Hauled ass down to the park, laughing like kids. Alistair yelling about stealing things, blurting out, Shit, we're stealing experience, man! We worked, that, uh, we worked that over all night, holed up in this little dive diner around the corner from Macro Polo, waiting for Sarah to get off shift. It's our manifesto, he said, over and over. Our mission, our manifesto, our very own credo. Stealing experience wasn't merely trespassing. You had to push yourself into new experience, a new place. And you couldn't take anything of real value. The whole point becoming not to take something from someone or invade their space or frighten them. The whole goal was to stay invisible, to borrow the time and place and reside as fully as possible in it without anyone knowing. We began entering buildings at night, the mental hospital, the oil refinery, the high school gym left propped open by a negligent custodian climbing into a warehouse filled with salt, dancing around at the top in the eerie green light of the plastic roof. We snuck into the music hall one night and listened to Dave Brubrack from behind the stage curtain. The bass boomed in our ears and the piano came to us as an echo off the back wall. We'd scale garden walls and, and lunch under someone's willow tree. Sometimes Sarah would come along. She'd call it her Jules and Jim thing. You're both my lovers, she'd, she'd brag. I own both you bitches. I remember Alistair standing up under a tree, pontificating as usual, finger pointing. There'll be a time when even light will be rare, a, a valued commodity, like bottled water, when citizens will pay to stand in certain places, which at certain days will become the new Grand Canyons. The ultra-rich will own dusk and dawn and keep them from everyone else. Shade will be coveted as in the old days, the masses laying in light pools like trout, dreaming porch green memories in a wash of nostalgia or something just as nutty. I would say, you know, there'd be this brief, un unadulterated history of all the unremembered backgrounds and people's photographs, blank clotheslines, empty skylines, empty but horizon line of geese. You don't see them because you're too busy framing the shot. A face, two faces, how many garage fronts have you not seen? Parking lots, closets, tell me. This whole book is, this is all, everything about this book is collage um, and collaboration. 
that's the whole idea of the book. So it is definitely collaged, um, fragments put together. It's all typed on an old eight pound typewriter, a Hermes rocket. So, and it was all, um, if you look at the pages, they're all typed on random pieces of paper. Sometimes the back of a page from a, a book stolen from a library, some from the back of it on the road. You don't know this, but because you don't see it, but they're all, all the paper is different paper. And so the f size of the paper dictates the length of the piece, you know, so, um, and so even like even the, the last chapbook had to be shorter than the others because it wasn't going to fit in the box by the time I was done. So there's a lot of kind of making a book in a with a, a different set of aesthetics than just it, it having to be you know, and so in some ways it's fair, it's a sloppy book. I mean, there's an aesthetic that's sloppy and the writing isn't, uh, what I meant to, what I tried to do is I tried to make him a, become a better writer over time. He's very self-involved in these pieces. Maybe I can read, maybe that's what I can do is read some of the pieces that he wrote later because what he wanted, what he began, begins to do is be, he begins to become a reporter. I mean, he's kind of very subjective but he's beginning to write about what he sees and what he experiences. And what happens is in my mind is that as he gets more and more kind of manic depressive and more he becomes to dis disassociate, he's becoming a better writer, but he, and he's seeing more things, but what his inner state is being put on the outer world. So it's almost reversed. Everything in his, in the beginning is super romantic and supercharged. And he, everything's like all about him and his friends. By the end, he's looking at, life around him and realizing it is charged with meaning but he has no connection to it because he's lost those he's everybody he meets everybody he connects to he ends up leaving behind okay this is the piece that he writes he's in seattle he's visiting his brother he's he's really kind of he's in a set of doldrums he's kind of given up some of He's given up on this on this woman, Sarah. He's kind of mad at his brother, and he's mad at himself. He's ready to leave, but he doesn't know how to, to stay or, or go. And this is called Directions to Zero. The signposts are simple. Oak tree, side street, and mud puddle. Follow them as a palm reader scans a hand. A ghost passing between the shedding trees. No plan in mind, just up the hill into the graveyard. You come upon a half burned down a half burned down building, flattened grass from a bomb blast, renovation futile. The crows call from adjacent telephone poles, squawking walkie-talkie static, rising up in unison as you pass beneath. You can't help but stumble upon wreckage. Striding down the street, hands at side, fingers out, eyes scanning the periphery. The breeze picks up, turning the last leaves over and exposing their undersides. You feel with all your senses, with sight and second sight. It is getting late. The sundown in a little over an hour. The graveyard's handle hooks easily back over the pole. At the back of the graveyard, all is still but the lurching arc of a lone sprinkler, a gravestone beneath a gigantic oak tree, the gravestone of a young man dead in his early 20s. Remember me, I live in quiet dreams and secret things and hidden pockets softly away. The whole area is injured, partially grown back. Bushes grow over a tumble-down wall. You're in a rough oval of cleared land, a circle of young trees, no birds. A few makeshift paths intersect, trampled grass and weeds marking the traverse of joggers, wandering coyote dogs. 
Follow the path through an opening in the stones. The path leads into a a ravine. Only sign of wildlife, a crow's feather wedged between knocked over branches. Sunlight cuts across treetops in a wide swath. Patches of gold leaves. Keep walking. Last turn in the path. High ground. The breeze catches branches in the wind. Yes. Stopping here at the edge of things. Yes. Stunned at the light rises up and archers aim to shoot its arrow into the far corner of the sky. All right, there you go. That was Sebastian Matthews reading from his new work, Life and Times of American Crow. You can check out more about the American poet and writer at sebastianmatthews.com. And I'm going to link something directly to the book, Life and Times of American Crow, in the show notes. Uh, but it's awesome. It's a beautiful object to hold and to go through and look at all this art and and read, read the book. Um, he's also working with a designer right now to create a pulp paperback version of it, which is due out in the fall of 2020, which is cool. So that version will be uh, available then. But he's a great guy. He's always helping out talking books, kind of our guardian angel, kind of a sage, uh, giving us advice, uh, writerly advice, but also advice on the nonprofit. Good guy, Sebastian. Thank you, sir. Um, And also what else is going on? Remember that if you used to like that podcast called Talking Shit, uh, episodes called Talking Shit we used to release on this feed, that's now its own show because it didn't make any sense called Talk About the Classic. So go subscribe to that right now. Talk about the classic. Uh, talk about the classic. Um, you can subscribe to that on your phone. Go check it out. It's funny. You'll love it. There's marshmallows. There's, there's stuff about uh, cereal marshmallows, you know talk about that a lot of topics a lot of hard-hitting topics but anyway what else uh talking book we just released caca dolce as an audiobook by chelsea martin uh narrated by sarah rouse which is awesome sounds really good uh hopefully going to do an episode where we release an excerpt of that soon so look out for that thanks so much to the narrator sarah rouse chelsea martin the author soft skull for making that happen uh but anyway yeah what else nothing much else Lots of stuff going on, but for now, uh, just have a really good day and uh, be yourself and, you know, shoot for the stars. My name's Chris Cross. My name's Cross. My name is Cross Hartram, and uh, this is The Talking Book. Um, uh, I'll talk to you later. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy. Chasing sister squares I was lit Before I knew that you were there Like an angel Who has forsaken certain Sleeping in the square I was lit Before I knew The storm was passing over And the window